0: Thanks so much for joining us for another podcast episode of Complex Identities. This is your host, Juan Marcos Bahramana Gutierrez. Yesterday, we spent some time looking at the views of Shia Cohen, a scholar that I revere, and also uh, have used as an example to highlight the, the standard view of the division between Judaism and Christianity very early on. I would say that that's the standard view from the 20th century, and many scholars have questioned that, especially in the latter part of the 20th century and, of course, into the 21st century, by asserting that the boundary lines between Jews and Christians was much more porous than we first imagined. Now, Shia Cohen maintains, again, the standard view, and I understand his perspective, but I think that we have to look a little bit more closely at examples where uh, Christians and Jews seem to be operating in a different frame of mind. And I wanted to highlight one example. We know the case of the persecution of Christians in the City of Lyons in 177 that gives us one example. And this is an example of Christians continuing to practice Jewish observances and where they even look to Jews to provide the resources for these customs. This was first highlighted by uh, Daniel Boyarin uh, in his article, Martyrdom and the Making of Christianity and Judaism. And he notes that these Christian martyrs were still observing the prohibition of eating meat with blood and hence the argument can be made I think fairly easily that they were purchasing their meat from where well from kosher butchers in the Jewish community and I think this is very important because we see this tied back to the first century at least as recorded in the New Testament as one of the key requirements for non-Jews joining the Jesus movement It's almost like a type of a Noahide observance, if you will, even before we really have an articulation of the Noahide laws uh, in the Tosefta, for example. Um, Whatever the case, these individuals seem to have this very sincere commitment to this one aspect of Jewish observances that was seen to be incumbent on non-Jewish members of the Jesus movement. Now, there's something else that Shaya Cohen stated yesterday, which I think we need to uh, highlight. Um, from his perspective, there were no Jews in the Christian movement and there were no non-Jews in the Jewish world. Um, and in this, this particular case, non-Jews is, is the Christians, if you will. And I think that I understand that without question. I mean, I'm certainly familiar and trained in the perspectives that uh, Shia Cohen has. And, and it certainly fits in with the idea that Yavne and the Berkat Haminim, Uh, had a tremendous impact on the relationships between Jews and Christians. But as I've noted, that view has become increasingly challenged by what we know about the limitations of rabbinic authority and power. And so with that in mind, one of the things that Annette Yoshiko-Reed, another very influential scholar of late, has noted is that uh, it's important for us to think about what we assumed to have been mutually exclusive categories of belief. And so she states the following. Some go on to speculate that the quote-unquote Jewish Christian message was simply rendered obsolete with the establishment of the mutual exclusivity of Christ's belief in Judaism, as allegedly proclaimed from both sides, that is, from the proto-Orthodox Christian side, and early rabbinic sages, each of whom are presumed to speak for all of their respective co-religionists. And the problem with that, of course, is that that simply doesn't stack up with the facts. It's not that there weren't Christian leaders or nascent church fathers. It's not the, the fact that there weren't rabbis who believed that to be true, but they simply did not exert the type of power that was required to push this idea on to the rest of the Jewish community or the nascent Christian community. And so that's something that is often difficult for people to perceive because I think it raises a lot of uncomfortable issues and people automatically start thinking about present day groups. and all types of issues that are of concern for certainly the Jewish community. But again, we're dealing with this from a scholarly perspective. We're interested in the dynamic and the relationship of Jews and Christians. And so this kind of statement I think is very important because it really challenges us to believe, uh, to consider or to reconsider what we believe regarding what it meant to be Jewish in the ancient world. Um, You know, standing from the 21st century and looking backward, it's easy for us to say, oh, that's clearly not Jewish. But in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple, in the aftermath of the Kitos War, in the aftermath of the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, Jewish ideas weren't in flux. And the idea of one particular sect adhering to a, uh, a first century rabbi uh, who had been martyred by the Romans, whatever you might think of his claims or not, is irrelevant. Um, there were many groups who had different and very uh, disparate views on these issues. And so at this time, we really have to look at something that's much more dynamic than the the hard lines that we think about. Now, in yesterday's podcast, we also discussed the fact that we're going to look at the the middle groups, if you will, uh, in the continuum of Jewish and Christian expression. And it's important for us to remember that whether they are deemed heretical uh, or not, you know, if you want to say not kosher, by the standards of uh, then-day Christianity or even today in in Christian circles or in Jewish circles for that matter, the diversity of these groups that we sort of put under the rubric of Christianity is evident by the constant mention of deviant sex by the church fathers and the occasional reference to them by uh, the rabbis. Now catalogs of heretical movements were a significant focus in the second, third, fourth centuries as we talked about before, and in the midst of these we find reference to various Jewish groups that supported the messianic claims of Jesus, but differed on many other issues from what uh, the emerging church fathers considered acceptable. And this is extremely important because it highlights how diverse the early Christian movement was, and in many ways it highlights the uh, complicated, uh, uh, what do you say, the uh, expoundation or the development of Christian thought. Um, and how diverse it was. Now, many of these groups rejected the the supersessionist ideology of many Christians. That is to say, the idea that that the, the Christians constituted a new body that replaced God's relationship with the Jewish people. And these groups also often maintained the belief that the Torah had not been nullified and that Jews were still bound to the Torah as a covenant. Now, consequently, if this is the case, and we know this from the records that we have, that they saw nothing in their minds that was incompatible with the observance of circumcision, the laws of Kashrut, that is, the kosher laws, the the Sabbath, uh, and many other elements uh, that they coupled with their belief that Jesus merited specific titles, that is to say, Prophet, Messiah, Son of God, whatever it might have been. As far as his nature and origins, the understanding of Jesus was often very different from those of the purported majority of the Christian church. And so, interestingly, we find that there are what we would say doctrinal differences between these middle groups and the uh, evolving um, Christology of the church, which, of course, was very problematic for the Jewish community. And so, in many ways, these groups in the middle took a very different uh, and complicated understanding of of things that most Christians today, and most Jews for that matter, would assume were part and parcel of Christian identity in antiquity. Now whether this is right or wrong theologically from a contemporary Christian or Jewish perspective is really irrelevant. What we're interested in is understanding these groups and their impact and their understanding of themselves in relationship to earlier Christian ideas. Now, whether any of these groups—that is, the uh, that we're going to study in, in forthcoming episodes—the Ebionites, the Nazarenes, the Samachians, etc.—are really tied back to the first century is difficult, if not impossible, to confirm. We simply can't prove it, and I think we always have to remember what Jacob Neusner says: "What we cannot show, we cannot know. At least, we can't know definitively." Now, if they were unquestionably linked to the community of Jerusalem in the first century, I would suggests that that would radically alter the understanding of many individuals regarding the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Uh, Indeed, uh, some have argued that these groups cannot be linked with the available information, so that sort of presents a problem because we don't have something that definitively establishes that connection. But let's assume that they're not linked to the first century, uh, whether it's to the community of James, the brother of Jesus in Jerusalem, or to some other group in the first century. In this case, they may, however, reflect something far more fascinating. At one extreme, they may con- uh, constitute uh, groups that were radically different from what we generally perceive as as normative Christianity. And as found in a particular document that we're going to look at, called the Clementine Homilies, these groups consciously employed, amazingly, and I think this is the the surprising thing contemporary rabbinic Jewish views and practices, and somehow they melded this uh, together with their belief in Jesus. Now, in the, in the case of the homilies, they have a very distinct uh, quote-unquote Christology or messianic view of, of what Jesus did um, that stands in contrast to much of uh, other other Christian groups. Whatever the case, they they created what seems to be sort of a unique hybridization, at least in the eyes of most people today. Um, Whatever the case, again, uh, Christian identity stands much more fluid uh, if we take these groups much more seriously than has often been the case in the past. And so as we continue our journey forward, we want to look at these groups and look at them not so much for uh, what they represent uh, today, but what they represented in the past. And how they give us an understanding of this much more fluid situation in terms of Jewish and Christian identity. Thanks so much for listening to another podcast episode of Complex Identities. This is your host Juan Marcos Bejarana Gutierrez. In the previous episode, we started to lay the groundwork for us to consider groups that lay in the middle of the Jewish and Christian continuum, and we talked about certain ones very briefly. We mentioned uh, the Ebionites, uh, the Nazarenes, for example, etc., and we talked about the possibility that some of them may have been linked to the first century, and also counter views, which uh, suggest that they didn't necessarily have links to the community of Jerusalem, for example. Now, those that argue against a link between these groups that we find mentioned in the second, third, fourth centuries, et cetera, um, and the connections to the first century of Jerusalem, often object based upon differing perspectives that these groups seem to have held with respect to several theological questions. For example, their views on the preexistence of Jesus, um, the virgin birth, uh, among other issues, including their outlook towards Paul seem to have been quite varied and often stood counter to the emerging uh, christian movement at least in what we characterize as its orthodox expression today now i would question that as a historian because it presumes that the first century jesus movement maintained a certain level of unity and had complete agreement on these issues so for example if we look at the question of the virgin birth that these middle groups in the you know second third fourth centuries seem to have uh, often uh, highlighted as a major difference between themselves and other Christian groups. If we look at the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, it's evident that this is an extremely important aspect of, their, uh, of the, the, the faith or the theology that they're conveying to their readers. In contrast, if you look at the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John or even the Pauline epistles, the virgin birth or the, the notion of the virgin birth doesn't even seem to appear at all. And so I think that this is extremely important because um, of course we could ask, does this mean that these authors or communities rejected this view? And n- not necessarily, but neither does it mean that they considered it a critical aspect of their faith or the message that they were conveying, at least in writing. Uh, it was not at its extreme, even part necessarily of their tradition. And perhaps one could argue that the idea was sufficiently widespread, that there were no need uh, on the part of the authors to mention it, But I think it's important to note that rarely do authors leave out ideas they consider critical to the case or message that they are communicating. And I think that this is something that we have to keep in mind. And the reason that I mention that is because, again, if we're looking at these groups that existed in the middle of the continuum between Jewish and Christian expressions as we identify them today, and they held certain views, we sort of try to understand, uh, or we should try to understand why they may have held these particular perspectives. And and if we look at the first century, maybe that's actually the the basis for these ideas uh, to have been present or to have been rejected. Now, here, I think it's important to uh, point to Rabbi Jacob Neusner. He has a very famous quote. Um, I've concluded it in some of the books that I've written. And he says the following. He says, if we insist that we speak not of Judaism, but of Judaisms, Does that not mean we also have to speak uh, not of Christianity, but of Christianities? Indeed, it does, and proves our point. People familiar with the rich diversity of Christianity today and throughout the history of the Christian faith will find routine the allegation that just as history has yielded its diverse Christianities, in some ways autonomous, and in some connected, in some continuous, so history testifies to more than one Judaism. Why then does everyone understand that there is not now and never was a single Christianity? And I think that this is extremely important because if we're gonna apply a certain critique historically to Judaism and to views of a monolithic Jewish expression in the second temple period, it's, it's important intellectually to apply the same standards to the early Christian movement, and as we've as we've noted before, uh, the documents of the New Testament seem to reflect different influences. And if this is the case, it, it shouldn't be shocking. Certainly, on a historical level, I think the concern is more on a theological level for people who hold a certain viewpoint. Now, contemporary readers, especially individuals who are practicing Christians, often assume that Paul's epistles imply an overarching Uh, what I would call a specific agreement on various theological issues. What Paul embraced must necessarily have reflected the views of other 1st century followers of Jesus. This is the standard view, I would say, among most individuals that I meet. His writings, however, I believe, reveal multiple groups and personalities that were in play in the early Jesus movement. Still, even if we were to minimize the divisions as conflicts of character or personality, The combative tones that Paul takes with groups from the quote-unquote circumcision, I believe, are evident in his letter, and that gives us an indication of these significant differences between these different groups. Now, the volume of his writings cannot, I believe, dismiss the existence of four very different Gospels, and more importantly, the communities that authored them. While the Synoptic Gospels, for example, are, are certainly similar to each other, and obviously academics look at... Uh, the Gospel of Mark as being sort of the source text for the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, um, the differences are sufficient, I believe, to merit consideration of uh, what Gaze of Ramesh would talk about the different faces or the different visions of of Jesus. There are many other examples that I could point to. Um, I think if you look at, for example, the Epistle of James, um, which of course is not one of the Gospels, but if nothing else, it highlights a very different understanding of the Logos uh, than John, the Gospel of John, or Paul espoused. And it stands out like an aberration, we might even call it an anomaly, in the middle of a purported congruity of the other works. And of course, as fascinating as these topics are, our, our focus really lies in other places. But the reason that I mention that again is because we want to look at these groups that stand in the middle and try to understand where they're coming from. It's not about proving one group to be correct or another group to have had a theology that wasn't reflective of the first century, but to understand that these things were in flux and that the groups that we find that are important for us to understand the dividing line, if you will, between emerging rabbinic Judaism as we know it and uh, Christianity, Orthodox Christianity as we know it, uh, these groups are sort of in the middle and they were connected to different streams of idea, ideas. And sometimes they may have actually pulled in ideas that were contemporary from either one of these ends, or they may have been influenced from earlier uh, perspectives uh, that date back to the first century. And I think that's really what I'm trying to communicate is we have to look at these groups and think about why they have these very unique perspectives because what we'll find is on the one hand, some of these groups maintain uh, very rabbinic, perspectives on shall we say the transmission of the Torah Uh, very similar to the the Torah Shabal Peh uh, the the transmission of the oral Torah and yet at the same time they hold very very different views than the rabbis would have held with respect to to other issues so again we're looking at the sources and why these groups uh, that we will eventually analyze may have come up with these very unique uh, theological systems